reference to Jesus because he has lightened, he has revealed to us the way of salvation. The way of salvation was obscure. Religious men, even to this day, still search for it. It leads us to idolatry many times, paganism. Many times pagans have a, a sincerity in their heart. They're looking for eternal life. They just don't know where to find it. But Jesus came, and he lightened unto us. He revealed to us the way of salvation. He said it with his own mouth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the door. If you want access to the kingdom of God, if you want access to eternal life, you go through Jesus. And Jesus enlightened to us concerning the Father. When you think about that for just a moment of time, even the nature of God, the thing that you and I have grown most familiar with concerning the nature of God, we can look back in the Old Covenant the, uh, and we can see the compound names of God, at least nine different names were translated or attached. They call it the compound names of God. You could take Yahweh or Jehovah and you would attach a compound to it, such as Nisi or such as Shalom, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my God is my peace. So we can look back and see his names and see a part of who God is. But in the New Testament, the New Covenant, Jesus comes revealing to us a side that even the Old Testament you didn't even see. Jesus, the way, he enlightened us to this, that he's the Father. Matter of fact, when you follow Jesus in his prayer time, very seldom does he pray like you and I would pray, Oh God, merciful God, seated in the heavens, looking down upon the earth. No, he would just say, Father. And so he revealed to us about this intimacy that you and I can have with the Father through Jesus Christ. Christ came and he enlightened us. Many of the things related to God, obscure in the darkness of this world till the light of Christ. As powerful as this thought is, and I want to just kind of detour from it, it's in the same vein, they're directly connected, but I want to talk to you about the light of the world from a little bit different. I want to talk to you about just spinning it a little bit, look at it from a little bit different perspective. So there's another, I told you there were two exact phrases, exact word for word, the light of the world in the New Testament. Here's a third, and I want you to see this. This is found in Matthew chapter number 5, and this is what we call the Sermon on the Mound, and it's in this particular passage, I want to back it up with one verse to begin with. And Jesus said this, you're the salt of the earth. So think about that, and I'm going to expound more on it in just a moment. But let's just read it in. It's four verses that we're going to read in its entirety. And just look at it. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor or its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? He said, it is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye, verse number 14, ye, you, you are the light. I'm reading King James, New King James on the screen. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, but put it under a bushel. And neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And then Jesus exhorts us to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so what a, it's not necessarily a paradox, but when you contemplate that for just a moment of time, Jesus himself said on two separate occasions, I'm the light of the world. And then a, in a contrasting application of the same phrase, he said, but you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And I've got that down in my spirit over the latter couple of days and began to 
contemplate. I want to expound it to you if I can for just a little bit because I think it's a little bit bigger picture that is often overlooked and we have to kind of, we have to try to, to interpret this biblically and, and, and put it in its right application. I don't want to be found guilty of taking the scriptures and extracting them out of their proper context and making application that maybe is not saying what the author's intent was or the intent of the speaker. And so just for a moment of time, here's the reality about this particular passage that you and I know as the Sermon on the Mount. And almost exclusively any of the, of the lessons or sermons that Jesus taught while he was here with us for three and a half years. Remember, the earthly ministry of Jesus was confined almost exclusively to the Jewish people. Very seldom do we find any interaction with any what we would call Gentiles. And for the sake of understanding, in that particular culture 2,000 years ago, there were two people groups. There was the Jewish nation that was given by lineage of Abraham, uh, by the national lineage, and also by proselyting into the heritage of Abraham. And then from the Jewish perspective, from their lens, all other nations were called Gentiles. There was a distinction between the Jewish people that descended from Abraham and the Gentiles. Jesus' ministry was almost exclusively with the Jewish nation. As a matter of fact, he himself said, I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you have to be careful when you make application of everything that he said in a first-person account, but you have to filter it to the, uh, through the original audience. So when Jesus goes up on this mountain in the Galilee area, the people that have gathered to him are almost all Jewish heritage. And Jesus is saying to them, Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth. But then he gives them a warning. But if the salt loses its flavor, wherewith shall it be salted? And then he uses another metaphor. He said, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill. And obviously to us, he's referring to Jerusalem. And the original intention in the heart of God was for his chosen people, the people of Israel, to be a light to all the nations. And Jesus is reminding them of their divine destiny and their purpose. And it's that that's what's got my spirit Jesus is reminding them of their calling and of their destiny, but he's also warning them of what can happen if they fail to walk in their divine calling. The latter verses, if I had continued in reading this, Jesus then tied immediately to the law. The law of Moses, the thing that unfortunately we in the Western Christian community of today fail to even consider as if it's applicable in our lives in any capacity. But in verses 17 through 19, Jesus taught us in this same context, don't think I've come to destroy the law. He said, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to fulfill it. I came to meet its expectation and to take it to the fullest extent of what it was in the heart of God when he gave it to mankind. And as I began again to think about that and to muse upon it and to just really consider that God's call was upon the children of Israel. And you say, Pastor, what was that call that God gave to the children of Israel? It was to lighten. It was to cast the light of God to a darkened community and cultures that had filled the earth since the genesis of time when the Bible says that man was driven eastward out of the garden. From that time, man became idolatrous. Man searched for God as in the darkness. And that's where we got idols and where we got witchcraft and we got all kinds and means of supposedly of, of approaching God. But I find in the Word of God that God had a chosen people, a people that He called out, that He determined that He would reveal His goodness to all the nations through the people of Israel. 
in Isaiah chapter number 42, verse number 6, here's a reference that I want to share with you real quickly, where the Lord says, I the Lord, he's speaking to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thine hand, and I will keep thee. Now notice, read it carefully. And I will give therefore a covenant of the, I will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light to the Gentiles. You say, Pastor, is that messianic? Yes, absolutely it's messianic, but it's even deeper. And it's going to the original purpose that God had in his heart and mind when he called the nation of Israel. When you think about this for just a moment, God had given Israel chosen prominence. But he had also given them something that would illuminate to man that sat in darkness about the invisible God, and that was called the law. The law that you and I oftentimes say, well, we're not under the law. And for whatever reason, we sidestep its importance in the history of man. And you hear me preach on a regular basis, and this is part of my personal theology, and that as climatic, probably the second most or the third most climatic day in the history of all mankind, the first was the cross, Right, and certainly the second was the resurrection. And then we could even say the third would be Pentecost. But often overlooked in our eyes, our Western understanding, is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because at Mount Sinai, God chose to reveal himself, and he gave to mankind a holy oracle that came forth out of his heart so that man could have his path illuminated to God. Man was searching for God, but man couldn't find God because he was hid in darkness. And God came through the law, and he revealed a part of who he is to the Jewish people. And he gave them the responsibility to shine or to share that light. And that's what's on my heart today. I want to talk about this. It allowed men to find fellowship. It allowed men to find forgiveness. Now, it wasn't the total forgiveness that you and I know today through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, it was insufficient. We understand the theological uh, limitations there. We understand that the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could in no wise take away sin. We know that today thanks to the writings of the book of Hebrews. But to that person that was under the, uh, the law, they understood that their sin was being rolled. It was placed upon a scapegoat. It was being led outside the city and dismissed into the wilderness. And so there was a release. There was a pardon. So now they could commune with God. They could pray to God and, and with their consciousness. They could say, God, I want to call upon your name. It would allow men to find fellowship amongst themselves. It gave them understanding and relationship. It gave them the ability to develop in their religion it gave them the ability to set up a civil society where people could actually care one for the other and laws that would protect rights of both the individual and of the community it gave them instruction about their own personal life matter of fact what I want to talk to you about today is just again the illumination that came upon the Jewish people was a way through the law how to live how to talk, how to function, how to be a dad, how to be a mom, how to be a, a student, how to be a, 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 someone who's involved in their community. It allowed them to find a place and a means where their life could be so altered as they served the one true God that they chose not to worship all the multitude of gods that were around them, and they chose to worship the one true God that as they did and as their life was miraculously changed, it would become a light to all the surrounding communities, all the surrounding cultures, all the nations that are around the people of Israel. They were chosen by God. 
So that's what Jesus is saying. When he's looking out that day, perhaps against the backdrop of the Sea of Galilee. And when we visited Israel many years ago, they took us to the traditional site that's believed that Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount. And perhaps that day as Jesus is looking in the eyes of men and women that came from the heritage of Abraham, and he's challenging them, and he's pointing at them in love, and he's saying, listen, he's saying, God chose you to be a light to all the people that are seated in darkness. When we think about this today for a moment of time, we think about the cultures that they were so pagan. We can't fathom. Now, how many know America's growing more pagan? But it dims in comparison to what history records of the pagan cultures of how men and women have lived in the bondage of darkness groping for light. Philosophies, people given over to the lust of the flesh, filled with unrighteousness, Paul wrote in Romans 1, said they were without understanding. They were without natural affection. On and on, we find them being governed by either humanistic philosophies or idolatrous practices. Often when you think, I use the term idolatry. Oftentimes we have this picture of idolatry. We think about perhaps someone of indigenous background in a remote country of the, where, where, where there's jungles and there's, uh, they're, uh, they're illiterate and there's really no really true understanding. And, and we think about uh, their simple lifestyle and they've, and they've chiseled out of the rock and they've, and they've made a God and they're worshiping and they're sacrificing. But you know some of the greatest, most intellectual societies and cultures that the world has ever known were idolaters. We can go back and we can read Grecian mythology and we can see how it progressed into the Roman Empire and how the people that gave us even certain principles that were adopted into the Constitution of the United States of America, that those men that gave us the, the, the laws of the Roman Empire worshipped idols. So idolatry could be something that was, again, birthed out of the jungle or it could come to us right in the concrete jungle of the greatest learned institutions of their time. But God had chosen the people of Israel to cast the light that there is but one God. Come on, somebody. And reveal that God to the people that grope in darkness. Romans chapter number 2. I want you to turn there. I want you to see this with me. Man, I'm getting excited up here this morning on a Sunday after Thanksgiving, which is tough to do at times. Romans chapter number 2. I want you to follow this with me. Is that all right? I want you to see this. I've got a means to this message, and there's a means to the end, and I want you to stay with me because I'm going to bring you there shortly. But I want you to see Paul and see, Pastor, am I sharing this out of its proper context, or am I in the right vein when I said that you are the light of the world? That's what Jesus said. He's speaking to the Jewish people. And then we're going to see, well, what does that apply to me? We're going to get there if you'll stay there with me for a few minutes. In Romans chapter number 2, again, four verses. Verse number 17 is Paul is writing to part of his audience at Rome, which is both Jewish and Gentile. But here he's addressing the Jew. And he said, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and you rest in the law, and you make your boast of God, and you know his will. Look at this. He said, this is about a Jew. He said, you know his will, and you approve the things that are more excellent. Because of why? Because you're instructed out of the law. 
So when Paul says you approve the things that are more excellent, he's talking about practical living, the choice of how to live, the choice of, of the things that you do, the way you act, the way, your, your, your sexual interactions, your, 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 your paternal interactions, your community interactions, everything about you as an individual. He said, as a Jew, you are able to approve the things that are more excellent. Why? Because you were instructed out of what? Out of the law. Because it was a light. It was a revelation. And then he said, look, notice this. And he said, and you're confident, verse number 19, that you yourself are the God of the blind and you're a what? A light of them which are in darkness. You're an instructor of the foolish. You're a teacher of babes. And you have found a form of knowledge and of truth in the law. So the apostle Paul is reminding that the Jewish people had this understanding that that was their distinct call from God to affirm and to approve how to relate to God and then how to relate to man because of the revelation given to them of the law. Now, for you and I, as a Western-minded Christians, we often think that Israel failed in their calling. When we read the New Testament, we find that it's written in John chapter number 1, Jesus came into his own, and his own received him not. And we have a tendency to think that the entire nation fell into darkness and failed in walking and fulfilling being a light to the Gentiles. But the reality is, many did fail. But let me tell you about one Jew who did not fail. One Jew said, to this end I was born. He said, I was born to give witness to the truth. Pontius Pilate, the, Romans, the Roman leader, he said, what is truth? Jesus said, thy word is truth. And for that very purpose, he had come. And he didn't fail in accomplishing the will of God. But as a matter of fact, he said, to do thy will is what I came to accomplish. And when he pillowed his head in death, he satisfied the just demands of a holy God. And the atoning blood that was shed on the cross that day paved a way for you and I to have access to God even greater than what the Jewish people had under the Mosaic Covenant. Come on, somebody. And so when we think about that for just a moment of time, Jesus revealed the Father to his children as only the light can. And as a matter of fact, when I think about Jesus, he was even one time asked to prioritize the commandments of the law. And remember when someone said to him, Jesus, tell us, one of his own, one of his own countrymen said, Lord, tell us about the law and tell us about what's the most important commandment and all the law 613 commands not just the 10 commandments if you do a uh, uh, if you're studious you'll know that there are 613 legal commands under the mosaic law and this jewish leader wanted to know as he inquired of jesus what's the first the highest of the interpretation of the law and jesus said this he quoted from deuteronomy chapter number six when he said this to love the lord thy god you want to hang everything about the law to the Jewish people, what their responsibility was, was this. He said, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that would be powerful enough if he stopped right there. And you could say, you know what, that's exactly right. I want to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength. But then he confounded his listening audience that day when he said, and... To love your neighbor as yourself. And the neighbor included those Gentiles that were neighboring communities around Israel that Jesus said, you're a city set on a hill. God intended for you to be a light to all that are seated in darkness. 
And so as I follow this further, I see his redemptive work accomplished on the cross. The reality is, then guess who Jesus sent out into the darkness to continue his ministry when he ascended into heaven? He sent out Jewish men and women to go into the darkness and to shine the light, to share the love of God, first with the Jewish people and then also with the Gentiles. Paul said this as he was contemplating this. The reality is is that many people believed, but others did not. And to those who do not believe, here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, if our gospel is hid, listen to this. This Nothing has changed. He said, if our gospel is hid, it's hid to them that are lost. In whom the God of this world, church family, there is spiritual warfare happening all around you. And you may have been this week, you may have been with family and friends. You may have been sitting at a long table and you had Thanksgiving dinner and it was all spread. And there might be some in that room right there that have a common faith, what we call here a like precious faith. There may be even some that, that, that their hearts are hardened to the gospel. And you say, why is their heart so hard? Because the God of this world, the God of this world has blinded, Paul said, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ should shine unto them. And so Paul and his other apostles were sent forth into the world and the culture to shine the light of Jesus. First to the Jewish community. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter number 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so Paul was a Jew. He himself said it, and all the other early disciples were Jewish, and they began to walk in their mandate and their calling. As a matter of fact, in time, I'm going to omit this going up on the screen, but I love this passage. It's in, in, in Acts chapter number 13. It's on Paul's first missionary journey. Now, if you understand, if you read anything about church history, did you know for the first eight to ten years of the days of the early church, the Jewish preachers only went to other Jewish brethren? For ten years, they that sat in darkness still sat in darkness until the gospel began to penetrate into the light of the Jewish community. And then God, God called. I'll tell you what, you got to be careful, Judge. God can raise up a Paul, a Kanye, a Justin. God can choose whoever he wants to, to disrupt society a little bit. Hello, somebody? And Paul was a religious fanatic who was persecuting Christian believers, mostly Jewish believers who had believed in Christ until a fateful day riding on a horse amongst other men, leaving Damascus. Well, the only gate in Damascus that's left standing is the gate that Paul rode out that day as he headed in Jerusalem, headed to the, Damascus, uh, to the city of Damascus. They call it the Damascus Gate. And he headed there with letters in his hand because he was going to take all the Christians and bind them and put them in prison. He so hated the faith of the gospel. But on that day, the light of the world stepped out and, come on, and the Bible says that the sun was shining. It was noonday. Have you ever looked into the sun at noonday? How could it be eclipsed by any light? Because there's a light that's greater. There's a light that's greater than any natural light. And in that moment, Paul could have looked in the sun and not been blinded, but that day he looked at the light of the world and he fell down and he said who are you Lord and the Bible says that the Lord called Paul from that day forward and sent him to be a light to the Gentiles but when he went on his first missionary journey guess where he found himself the familiar ground of the Jewish synagogue and there was he was preaching in the Jewish synagogue he began to tell the Jewish men and women that believed in God but did not know about this man called Jesus 
And he began to tell them Jesus came just like the law said. He died just as the law said and the prophet said, and now he's resurrected to the right hand of God. And he began to preach to them, but you know what? Some of their hearts were hardened. But then the Bible says, but the Gentiles, the Gentiles' hearts began to soften. And when their hearts began to soften, Paul said, this is a fulfillment of the word in Isaiah where God said, we are sent as a light to the Gentiles. Now, church family, I'm telling you all this to bring you to this place right here. And I'm going to begin to narrow this down and make this very applicable to you. You say, Pastor, I'm here today as a believer in Christ Jesus. Yes, I am Gentile of natural heritage. But the reality is when you come to authentic faith in Christ, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God's called you to be the light. I know one of the things that people, they, they wrestle with more than anything. One of the things that's the greatest points in our culture today is purpose. People just want to have a purpose. People just don't want to say, am I living in this abstract world and I'm sitting out here and I don't know anything? Why am I here? I'll tell you why you're here. God saved you to be a light. Your purpose is found in Christ. And God's called you to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. God didn't just bless your business so that you could be prosperous and take vacations. God blessed your business so that you could be a light. God didn't just send you to the schoolhouse so that you could teach children and have a, have a career. God sent you there so that you could be a light. God didn't just allow you to go into the military so that you could be the defense of this nation. No, God sent you there so that you could be a light. The light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And so church family, I want you to know this Christmas season as you see Christmas lights and you think about the one who came as the light of the world. And yes, he is. He said himself, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But guess what? He's not in the world anymore. But guess who he is? We are in the world and we're here to reflect his love and his light and his grace to people that see in darkness. And that's a good word for you today. I want to show with you, share with you a couple things. I watched the time. I've been going for about 25 minutes. I got a few more minutes left. Amen. Let me tell you how I got to this message. I'm going to go to Philippians chapter number two. I, I want to, and then I'm going to close in a bang. Bam. I'm going to go to Ephesians two. Y'all been quieter than what, than what I like, but I'm not going to believe it's not because you're not listening. I'm going to believe it's because you're engaged and you're looking for that thing and saying, Pastor. I had a little bit of a revelation as I was thinking about something. I, can, I, can I go into my world for just a moment and share with you? I've been reading this book that Jace gave me that came from his uh, studies when he was finishing his bachelor's degree in, in uh, what is it again, Jace? Christian studies. And it's on the history of the church in plain language. Now, a pastor like myself, I didn't go through any type of formal education to obtain my license in the Assemblies of God. My, I, had a, a pre, I started preaching when I was 16, and so by the time that I applied for license, I was 25, been preaching for nine years, and I'd had what they called a proven and fruitful ministry, so I was able to be brought in. So I didn't have this formal education. Now, as you do so, you're educated, but it's not formally. Hello? Right? That means I can get alone in my own office and study and read and pray and gain knowledge, but... Dr. Brassfield shared with me at one time, he said, but you know, formal education does a great job or can do a great job of layering education so that you can put one layer down and then build upon it. One thing that I missed, I only had little bits and pieces was 
I just had little glimpses in to church history. So this book that I'm reading is a 500-page book. I've been looking for the movie, and I have not found it yet. <laughs> That's a lot. But at the same time, I've been addicted to it. Matter of fact, I felt like it has hindered my sermon preparation a little bit because I can't hardly put it down. Because I've got to see, but what it's done is it's allowed me to take a step back and kind of see church, you know, from beginning to uh, the gospel all the way to where we are today. And as I do, did so, I just, you know, I just see people in every culture, every generation, that when they have the knowledge of God, they're still just saying, but what, my purpose, what's my purpose? Why do I, what's my calling? And you know what? Our calling, our calling, no matter whether you lived in the dark ages uh, or whether you live in the time of the Protestant Reformation or perhaps the greatest time that the gospel has ever known, the time in which we live in today, and that is that we are called to be a light. We're called to live our lives for the glory of God. And so I went to a familiar passage because I had this on my mind when I was studying. And it's in Philippians chapter number 2 because I've quoted it many times and I've not always applied it correctly. And I just saw a little bit of illumination to it. And it's in Philippians chapter number 2. And I want to read this before I kind of transition for just a moment. It's about four or five verses, verse number 12. He said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Have you ever said that? We've said it many times. Probably all of us from the leaders have said it from this pulpit. Work out your own salvation. And oftentimes the way I have used this is, is that you've got to make it personal and you kind of got to work it out. Like let's say there was contention between a husband and a wife. And you said, you know what, we got some problems and we're trying to work through or we're trying to work out our relationship right now. But that's really not what that means. If you go back to the original language, work out, it's not one word, but it's, or two words, but it's one word. And it just simply means to perform or to execute or to do. And so if you'll put it back in its context, what Paul is saying is that you've been called of God, so now do it. You've been called of God to do what? To be a light, now do it. You've been called of God to live a life that's pleasing to Him. Quit talking about it. Just do it. Be who God's called you to be. Now let's read a little bit further. Because why? Because God is working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. So live your life without murmurings and disputings. Well, I knew nobody was going to say amen to that. Because that's not how we want to go. That, that's, that doesn't feel good to the flesh. But Paul said, listen, I don't care what you're going through. Keep your mouth closed and just worship God. Be faithful. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. So look at this. That you may be what? Blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked. Sounds like America, doesn't it? In the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation or generation. In the midst of a perverted generation, he said, you're going to do what? You're going to do what? You're going to shine as a light. You're going to shine as a light. And how are you going to do so? Verse number 16. He said, you're going to hold forth. One thing I'm not ashamed of today is I thank God for the word of God. I thank God for the revelation of God that I have that I could say with the Apostle Paul when Paul said, I pray that when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I thank God for the Word of God. And you know what? Every man, woman, boy, and girl needs to hear all around the world, but including your neighbor, your co-worker, and your family member, they need to hear the knowledge of God revealed through the consistency of your life as you live out the Word of God every day in front of them. 
as you are unashamed of the truth and you, are, and you recognize the Word of God reproves the darkness. The Word of God shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot in any wise overcome it. Ephesians 5 is the passage, Joe, I'm going to omit for the sake of time. Maybe I'll pick it up next week. But I'm telling you, light. How many of you know the word is light? People don't know how to live. Hello? They don't know what's right and wrong. They don't know what's acceptable to God and what's not, but you do. Right? Let it alter every part of your being, and then you be willing to share the truth of the life of God revealed through the word of God. And when you do so, you become the light of the world. Does that make sense here today? Everybody has a purpose to be a light. Let me close, share with you a couple things I discovered in this journey. I'll tell you what, God is shining the light. Hello? Come on, I want you on, page, on the same page with me as I close. God's shining the light. He's shining the light. God will use whatever means and method he so chooses. He's sovereign. We have to be very careful. Thank God that the message goes out. When Paul thought about this, and he was writing about it, and he said, how can people be saved if they can't hear? How can they hear unless there's a preacher? And how can anybody preach unless he be sent? God's word is sounding aloud in our generation, and he's using all kinds of tools to reach people that are seated in darkness. Let me share with you some things that you can be a part of as I close this message. You can affirm in your heart that these are tools that God is using to reach people that sit in darkness. Number one is music. I'm going to even go out and go beyond just music, contemporary music. You know what that means? Even contemporary worship music is a transition from the traditional music of the church over the latter couple hundred years. It's been controversial. There are two sides to the story. I understand you can look at it for whatever lens. But the reality is this, is that contemporary music is going where even heralds and preachers and pastors cannot go. And there's a song that we sing at this church. And you've heard it before. It's what a beautiful name. It, was, it comes to us from a hill song out of Australia. And the Bible, or not the Bible, but Pentecostal history tells us that Smith Wigglesworth prophesied before his death that there would come a sound out of Australia that would be heard around the world. What sound was that? It's not necessarily the preaching of Hillsong, but it's the music of Hillsong. And one of their songs is what a beautiful name it is. We didn't sing it this morning. And every now and then I go because I follow it on and just seeing how many views on YouTube. YouTube only. Not the other ways. But did you know that since that song was written and placed in the system, whatever that is, the internet system, four to five years ago, there have been over 330 million views of that one Christian contemporary song. God's sending the message that there's a beautiful name the name of Jesus, and it's going around the world by means of music. Number two is media. Media is pro and con, yes and no, good and bad. How I many you know every one of us can have our faces in this too much? I can look across and I can point at my children at many times and I can just kind of shame them a little bit and, and, and a little bit of, of, of love and say, look at y'all, we come all over here to gather up and we're all lined up on the couch. And then I can hypocritically find myself slipping away to check on the Razorback coaching search. <laughs> but the reality is, in the most obscure village around the world, if you could look there today, there'd be somebody sitting on a log. No shirt on, got a bone through his nose, and he got an iPhone in his hand. 
If you had come out to a mission service a few months ago, you'd have heard about our own Assembly of God ministry through Glenda McMath about how the Assemblies of God and creative minds are coming together to say, maybe we can't get in that country. Maybe we can't get in that nation with a missionary on the ground, but we can still send the light of the gospel through the tool of the media. Come on. It's a powerful tool. God's chosen to use it. Missions. I believe in missionaries today. It's Mission Sunday today. I thank God. Today, for men and women that have the, have the commitment to Christ to leave safety and the security of a home in the Western world and to go into a dark place and shine the light. It may be to go on a missions trip to Arizona, or it may be including writing a check on Sunday morning and say, I can't go to Africa, and I can't go to Eurasia, but I can sure help send somebody there. And when you do so, let me tell you, you're being a light. Come on, church family. You're being a light to people that sit in darkness. There were five things dropped on my, the Lord dropped in my heart about how he's shining the light. He's shining through music. He's shining through media. And he's shining through missions. And let me say this today. He's shining through miracles. I tell you, our God is a miraculous God. He's always been and he always will be. And these are not one without the other. These are overlap. And I want you to know today there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in the gospel. And there's power to break sin and darkness and bondage off of your life and the lives of your. When you share with somebody about this Jesus, you're not giving them just a little vitamin to help them improve their health. You're giving them the hope of change that is both now and eternal where everything in their life can change. They'll be taken out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. And it's a miracle, the power of the miraculous. Let me go ahead and say this. I got one more. But I was still reading in that book one more, and I'm, one, I'm, I'm towards the, the, the beginning of modern-day missions. And I jumped ahead because I knew where this story would end. Because did you know that from the time of Christ until about the 1700s, the gospel had barely gone outside of Europe except for the, the Jesuit priests of the Catholic Church, but they were militant in their advancement of Catholicism. And so but when the birth of place of, of modern missions began to take place, we began to see the gospel go to Africa, go to other places. Yet the church's numbers grew just a little bit. But then when you look back, beginning at the 20th century until 120 years later, as we are embark on 2020, there has been an explosion of missions explosion of half of the continent of Africa, what was known as the dark continent today, is born-again believers in Christ. Half of the continent's number has been born again. And even historians, they hate to tell the tale because it conflicts with their theology. But they say the miracle of modern-day missions can be found in the Pentecostal movement. Because when the Pentecostal movement was birthed, men and women had a fire in their soul that had not been seen since the days of the early apostolic church. And men and women knew that they could go into dark villages where men hold over cauldrons and cast spells and they could come in by the power of the Holy Spirit and they could do signs and wonders and they could display the power of God. It's a powerful testimony to the light that still shines and you're a part of it today. When you and I believe and we lay hands on people in faith, we're still shining the light that Jesus Christ is our healer. Lastly today, is mercy. There's no tool perhaps even greater than mercy. Being kind, love, everything that you do, every opportunity that you have, 
to do good to somebody is shining the light of Jesus Christ into their soul. Every time God lays on your heart to go to that sick person and bring them soup, every time God says go down to the jail and sit with somebody, you're shining the light. Every note that you write to somebody that you know is downcast because they lost somebody and they're struggling with depression as a result of it, you're shining the light of Jesus' love in a darkened age. Jesus said this to his audience, and I'm saying it to mine today. You are the light of the world. A city that sits on a hill cannot be hid. Jesus said, let your light, listen to me as I close. Listen to me as I close. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our heads are bowed and eyes closed.